Well, I want to say good morning to all of those who are here who are watching online, those who are watching by TV, those at our Mill Creek campus. So thanks for being here today. Um, I, I wish I had the time to tell you, we had an unbelievable, maybe the greatest mission trip I've ever been on in my entire ministry. And that's saying a lot. I know you heard a lot, of, a little bit about it. We're going to be sharing with you more about it in the days to come. But I never dreamed when I went down there that we would actually see, believe it or not, 500 people one-on-one receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. It was just phenomenal. And um, I got an opportunity to witness to the First Lady of Panama. It was like a King Agrippa moment. I'll tell you about it sometime. But it was just a, just a powerful time. And I thank you for your prayers and, and, and for you uh, supporting us while we're away. Well, I, I read a book recently, and one of the chapter titles was The Man Who Won't Go Away. You know, when a person dies, and, and, and the older you get, the more you think about dying, you realize that when a person dies, the, the, their impact on the world immediately begins to fade into the background, and, and they're pretty quickly forgotten. We hate to think of it that way, but it's just true. You know, their, their names are very rarely, it doesn't matter how famous they are, their names are very rarely mentioned or spoken of, and even if they leave something behind that we experience or we enjoy, you know, every day, we don't really think about the person who did it. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you have an iPhone with you or you have a, a Mac, or an Apple product. How often do you think about Steve Jobs? Very rarely, probably not at all. Uh, when you turn on a light in your room or you turn on a radio, how often do you think about Thomas Edison? Probably very little at all. What about uh, upholding the Constitution? We've been hearing a lot, right, about the Constitution the last two or three weeks. Well, you probably don't think about James Madison at all. It's just the way it is. It doesn't matter how great you are, how high a ladder you climb, how much you accumulate, how much you achieve. When you die, the memory just fades away, except one man bucked this trend, only one. Jesus' impact was greater 100 years after he died than it was when he was still alive. It was even greater 500 years later after he died. It was even greater 1,000 years later. His teaching, his life, his influence formed the foundation of what we call today all of Europe. And now after 2,000 years, think about this. This man's been gone 2,000 years. Today, he has more followers in more places around the world than ever before. There are four little miniature biographies that were written about him. Not even full biographies, miniature biographies. Most of them deal with the last week of his life, and yet they are so popular, so well-read, they've impacted the world so much. Listen to this. They have been translated into 2,527 languages. About a man that has been gone 2,000 years. Now, to put that in perspective, the second most translated book in the world, I didn't know this, Don Quixote, been translated in about 60 languages. Today, this man's name, Jesus, today, will be spoken by more people all over the world than every other human name in all of history of every other person, alive or dead, put together. Jesus even changed the way we think about history. You know, we start, I bet you didn't know this. We start our new year every January the what? January, okay, just want to see if you're awake. All right, January the 1st. You ever thought about why? Well, in Israel, a baby was brought to the temple and given a name on the eighth day of life. January the 1st is eight days after December the 25th, 
which is the day we celebrate the birth of Jesus. It marks the beginning of the new year because that is the day when the name Jesus was officially brought into the world. So here's what's funny. Every New Year's Eve, when we start to celebrate the start of a new year, the world doesn't even know it. What we're really doing is we're celebrating the name of Jesus. So after two millennia, every time anybody anywhere opens up a calendar or a newspaper, boots up a computer, gets on the internet, we're reminded Jesus Christ is the core, He is the center, He is the circumference, He is the central figure of all of history. From the time that Jesus was born until right now, every ruler, every king, every dictator, every president must be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. We measure time today in two Latin words, Anno Domini. I'm preaching this 2020 A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. That's why you really can't disagree with the British author H.G. Wells, who once wrote these words. I am a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this pitiless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Now, I say all that to set up where we're going for a little while. We're beginning a, a series of messages today in a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church, and I had, had forgotten this. This was one of those rare churches that Paul wrote to that he'd never visited. He'd never been there. He, he'd never met these people in his life. And yet, in this book, he talks about Jesus like the guardian of the galaxy. As a matter of fact, that's what we're gonna call this series in the book of Colossians, the guardian of the galaxy. Because let me tell you what this letter says. This little letter probably exalts Jesus, magnifies Jesus, lifts up Jesus, elevates Jesus more than any other book of the Bible. And, and, and what Paul says throughout this book is, he is the creator of the universe. He is the controller of the universe. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our assistance. He is in charge of every single thing. And the whole book, if you wanna know what this book, this four chapters is about, the whole book can be summed up in one half of one verse. It's Colossians 3.11. Listen to this. Christ is all and is in all. Let, let, let's say that together. You ready? Say it loud. Christ is all and is in all. That kind of sums it all up. And all of that leads to a prayer that Paul wrote at the beginning of this book where he prays for a people, now listen, that he's never even seen. As I was reading this prayer and going over this prayer and studying this prayer, I became more and more convinced this is absolutely one of the greatest prayers ever prayed. And I'll tell you why I love this prayer. It is a perfect model prayer on how to pray for people you don't even know. It is a perfect model prayer. You can pray absolutely anytime, anywhere. As a matter of fact, that's why I've titled this message, no offense, Prayer for Dummies. That's what we're calling it today, okay? Prayer for Dummies. You know, I don't know if you read these books or not. There are over 500 titles that have been published. Uh, you know, Subjects for Dummies or Blank for Dummies. Over 500 titles have been published. Over 200 million copies of these dummy books have been sold. 
And so I, I thought it'd be interesting. I wanna just give you just a few of some actual books for dummies that you can buy, okay? I, I'm not making this up, I'm really not. This is really, these are really true uh, uh, titles. And by the way, if you're single or thinking about getting married, you might wanna buy these books in order, okay? Just trying to help you. For example, you say, man, I can't get a date. I, I got a skin problem. Well, you need acne for dummies, okay? That's what you need. You need to buy acne for dummies, clear that up. Then maybe you can get a date, all right? Now, if you wanna start up a relationship with someone you're attracted to, but you don't know how to get started, then you need to read Flirting for Dummies, okay? This is a book gonna tell you how, okay, this is how I can kinda, you know, getting good with this female or this lady. Now, if you flirt with a girl and sparks begin to fly, then you can read Dating for Dummies, okay? You'll know how to date, where to take her, not to take her, that kind of thing. Now, if the spark turns into a fire, then you can read Making Marriage Work for Dummies, okay? So you read the book, tells you how to have a good marriage. Now, in case the book doesn't work out, you can read Divorce for Dummies, okay? So you got all these books, it covers the whole gamut. Now, you get the picture. So if I were to write a book and I were to call it Prayer for Dummies, I would write the entire book based on this one prayer. So if you've got your discipleship booklet, the passage is on page 54, or you can turn to the first chapter of Colossians, chapter one. By the way, it's real easy to find. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right in the middle of the New Testament, General Electric Power Company. Good way to remember it, okay? So here's the point. If you're ever in a situation, I'm on a roll, listen. If you're ever in a situation where you need to pray for someone, and we've all been there, I've had people say, I don't know how to pray for my son. I don't know quite how to pray for my daughter. I don't know how quite to pray for this, or I don't know how to pray for that. We've all been there. I've been there. So if you're in a situation right now and you say, you know, I've got a person, I've got a situation, I've got this deal, and I don't really know how to pray for this person, this is a perfect prayer. You can pray for anybody, anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. As a matter of fact, can I be selfish? I hope all of you pray for your pastor. If you don't, please start today. And would you pray this prayer for me? Would you pray these three things for me every single day? And while you're praying, I hope you pray for our church. This is what, this is what I pray for our church when I pray for our church. Just three simple things we could pray. Ready? Number one, we should pray that people would be directed by the will of God. That's a great prayer. Be directed by the will of of God. Now, there's one thing you could say about Paul as you study his writings. You, you may not like some of the things he said, and I know today we're living in a day when some people don't. Let me tell you something about Paul. The guy knew prayer. He knew about prayer. He knew how to pray. He knew how to pray in such a way God would hear. He knew how to pray in such a way that he knew when he was praying, he was connecting. They weren't bouncing off the ceiling. They weren't bouncing off the wall. They were getting straight to God. He knew how to pray, but he took his prayers to a totally different level. Now keep in mind before we get into this, he's praying for somebody he's never seen, praying for somebody he's never visited, and he doesn't have to wonder what to pray for them. He doesn't have to wonder how to pray for them. He doesn't really even know what's going on in the church. He doesn't know the makeup of the church. He doesn't know the personalities in the church. He doesn't know the problems in the church. And yet, he begins by praying one of the most important things you can pray for anybody. By the way, if you're a parent, 
You better be praying this prayer every day for your children. If you're a grandparent, you better be praying every day this prayer for your grandchildren. Now, here's how he starts. We're in verse eight. He said, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, he didn't know about him, he just heard about him. We have not stopped praying for you. Now, you have to imagine the church goes, wow, that's great. He doesn't even know who we are. He doesn't even know our names, but he's praying for us. Well, how's he praying? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, before I get into this total prayer, I want you to keep something in mind. This prayer is sequential. He's not just throwing words out there. It's not just, he's praying the first thing that comes to his mind. And it's not coincidental that the very first request that Paul makes is that we would all be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Do you know why he begins by praying that? Because he prayed something that I've learned by experience. He knows if you are living in the will of God, every other part of your life will fall in place. If you're living in the will of God, every other part of your Christian life will fall in place. Now, we have to understand what Paul meant here. And so there are two words I want you to, I want you to really focus on, okay? One is the word fill, and the other is the word knowledge. He said, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Let's think about that word filled. What does he mean by being filled with that knowledge? Well, the word filled means to be controlled by. It means to be dominated by. You know, for example, if you're filled with alcohol, you'll be controlled by alcohol. If you're filled with anger, you will be controlled by your anger. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is really saying is this, you should every moment of your life, of your life be controlled by the will of God. No matter what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're saying, where you're going, you should be able to look in the mirror and say, I know this is the will of God for my life. I know this is exactly what God would have me to do, which leads to the other word. The other word is that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And this is important to understand. This word knowledge is not referring to intellectual knowledge in your head. It's not talking about facts. It's talking about the personal experiential knowledge of the will of God in your heart. And let me tell you why I want you to understand this because too often when I hear people talk about the will of God, people will come into my office or people will stop me and they'll say to me, hey, I'm trying to discern what God's will is for me you know, in this situation. When we talk about the will of God, 99% of the time, we're, we're thinking in terms of the future. So, um, is it the will of God for me to go this college or that college? Is it the will of God for me to take this job or that job? Is it the will of God for me to take this week off or that week off? There's always, always out in the future. Now, what does God want me to do? And there's nothing wrong with that because there are many ways in which the Lord leads us. I want to make that very plain. But here's what I want you to understand. When the Bible talks about the will of God, it is not primarily you know, about us trying to figure out something that we need to learn or something we need to do. That's not what the will of God's referring to. The will of God is referring to, the, to, to what we already know that we need to obey. It's not about the future. It's about the present. It's about right now. So let me give you an example. I want you to listen to this one statement. This will tell you all you need to know. The psalmist said, 
Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. He did not say, teach me to learn your will. He didn't say, teach me to find your will. He didn't say, teach me to know your will. That's what we always ask. He said, teach me to do your will. Well, there's an assumption here that you already know what the will of God is if you're a follower of Jesus. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should know the will of God. As a matter of fact, you ought to know about 99% of all you need to know about the will of God. You say, well, question. Where do you find it? Right there. And the reason why, I'm gonna be honest, a lot of you don't live in the will of God. You're not hitting on all these cylinders because you don't know the will of God. And the reason why you don't know it because you don't read it and you don't find it. I mean, it, it amazes me how, how, how many times I will tell believers, I mean, they know the Lord and, and they'll say, you know, I don't exactly know what I ought to do about this situation. I don't know what I ought to do about that. Here's a classic example. Can you believe I've had people come to my office? Listen to this. I've had people walk into my office, look me in the eye, not blink and say, you know, I'm divorcing my wife because God told me to. Now, there's a Greek word for that, stupid. No, God didn't tell you that. Sorry. Have you not read the scripture? Do you know what the word of God says about that? I mean, the, the, the point I want you to understand is the vast majority of the will of God for your life and my life has already been revealed. And I don't have time to quote scripture in verse, but we're told over and over in the Bible. Let me just give you some examples. It is the will of God. If you're single, listen to me. It is the will of God you stay sexually pure. It's not old fashioned. It's not fundamentalist. It's not narrow minded. It's not backwards. It is the will of God that you be sexually pure. I'll tell you another one. Some of you out there that have a spiritual gift of criticism. It is the will of God that we be grateful. It is the will of God that we be thankful. It is the will of God that we don't complain about what we don't have. We're grateful for what we do have. Here's another one. It is the will of God that we love each other. By the way, let me just make something plain. It is not the will of God that we like each other. Okay, thank God for that. You know, Will Rogers famously said, I never met a man I didn't like. Well, I got to introduce him to some people I know. But it is God's will that we love each other. Tell you something else. It is the will of God that we be saved. If you're not a believer, it is the will of God that you be saved and you come to a knowledge of the truth. It is the will of God that we keep the golden rule, that we just treat others the way we want others to treat us. And I've said this before, but I want to say it again. The reason why many people never find the will of God that they don't know is because they're not already obeying the will of God that they do know. I mean, think about it. You've got a situation right now. You don't know what you need to do and you want God to tell you what to do. Yet you're disobeying God in this area of your life and that area of your life, this area of your life and this area of your life. Why in the world would God tell you to do something that you don't know to do when you're not even doing what he's already told you that you do know what to do? So when Paul says, I pray you'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he doesn't mean tomorrow, he means today. How about doing it today? That's why Paul goes on to say this in this prayer. He says, to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, okay? Now, you wanna find out the will of God for your life? So easy, you gotta follow this formula, you ready? Now watch this. 
the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and gives you the wisdom of God to know and do the will of God. I'm gonna leave that up there for a minute. You might wanna write that down. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and gives you the wisdom of God to know and to do the will of God. Now, I wanna be very honest, and I hope some of you will resonate with this, and in fact, I believe most of you will. I've been a Christian for a while. I've been a follower of Christ for a long, long time. I look back on my Christian life, and I'm gonna be honest. I've had a far bigger struggle with doing what I knew was God's will for me than discerning what I thought God's will might be for me. I've had, a hard, I've had a hard, bigger, I've had a much bigger struggle doing what I know God wants me to do today than figuring out what God wants me to do tomorrow. In his classic book, Confessions, the great Saint Augustine, he tells of the turning point in his own life. He, he was struggling between the temptation of a mistress that he had on the side and the call of the Spirit of God on his life. And, and he, was, he, was, he was sitting on a bench under a fig tree with his Bible open. And he heard this voice that came from a neighboring house and it just simply said, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Well, he, he looked around and, and he said, surely God's not speaking to me. He heard it again, pick it up. Well, all of a sudden he realized that the person was not talking to him, but some children who were playing a game uh, across the way. Well, that voice so stirred Augustine, he did what he heard because he had his Bible on his lap. So he picked it up and he read it. You won't believe what he read. You ready? Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, close your, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, here's what happened. He heard the word of God. The Word of God, through the Word of God, he received the wisdom of God. By the Spirit of God, he was moved to do the will of God. You know what he did that moment? He said farewell to his mistress, and he said, Lord, from now on, I'm totally surrendered to you. That's what it means to be directed by the will of God. That's why it's important. You do for your kids what my mom did for me. When I got saved as a nine-year-old boy, first thing my mom did, she bought me a Bible. She just didn't be, you know, buy me a Bible and put my name on it. Every day, she had me read the Bible. Every night, she would come in and she would talk about the passage that I read that day. So I started reading the Bible when I was a nine-year-old kid. And I cannot tell you this minute how grateful I am that my mother loved me enough and cared enough about me and had enough spiritual maturity to understand the best thing I can do for my nine-year-old son is to get my son into the Word of God because my son wants to, I want my son to be in the will of God. I want my son to have the wisdom of God. I want my son to be filled with the Spirit of God. And so the very first thing we ought to be praying for each other, the very first thing we should pray for our church, the very first thing you should pray for yourself, and the easiest way you can pray for somebody you don't even know, Lord, I pray they would be directed by the will of God. Check. Here's the second thing we ought to pray. Be devoted in our walk with God. Be directed by the will of God. Be devoted in our walk with God. Now, here's the question. What, what, what's, the, what's God's end game? What, what is the end person, a purpose of being directed by the will of God? What, what, what is this whole business about? What is God's will trying to get me to do? Paul says, don't wonder 
Here it is. So that, so that, be filled with the knowledge of his will, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now that phrase, live a life, in the Greek, in the Greek language, it's actually the word for walking. It's very interesting when you, when you study God's word, frequently in scripture, living for God was described as a walk. You know, it was said of the great Saint, Old Testament Saint Enoch, and Enoch walked with God. And the reason why the Bible compares life as a walk, because if you think about it, that's exactly the way you live your life. I mean, every day you get out of bed, what's the first thing you start doing? You start walking. You start taking certain steps. You start going in certain directions. You start doing certain things. And what Paul is saying is, from the time you get out of your bed in the morning till you go to bed at night, it is the will of God that every step you take would be worthy of the Lord. Every step you take would please Him in every single way. So, when you're trying to make a decision about whether or not you ought to take a certain action, or you're trying to decide, should you say a certain word, or you're trying to decide, should I, should I move to a different place or stay where I am? Here's a couple of great questions you ought to ask yourself before you take that next step. Number one is what I'm about to do, say, or think worthy of the Lord. Well, how many words would we, would we have never said? How many things would we, have, would we have never done? How many actions would we have never taken? How many places would we have never gone if we just stopped and said, wait a minute, is this worthy of the Lord? And then second question is, what am I about to do, say, or think pleasing to the Lord? Is it pleasing to the Lord? And I really believe the reason Paul was praying that for the church in that day is the same reason we ought to be praying for that in our churches in this day. And let me tell you why. And this is hard. It's disappointing. This is true. Research shows that people who call themselves Christians fall into two categories. So you're in one of these two categories. All of us are in one of these two categories. There are those who see their Christian faith as just kind of like, um, it's kind of like background noise. It's kind of just behind us. You keep it low where nobody can hear. It doesn't bother anybody. But then there are Christians who, they're in the game. I mean, they're, they're kind of all in. Okay, so let's take the latter group first. These are the people who say their Christian life is very important to them. They attend church at least once a month. Christianity is a way of life for them, okay? Now here's the sad news, you ready? Only three out of 10 people in America who call themselves Christians are practicing Christians. Three out of 10. Then you have what's called nominal Christians who, by the way, are the largest faith group in America today. Three out of four adults who have some Christian background, okay, that's who we're talking about, but about three in five American Christians are completely and mostly inactive in their faith. So in other words, six out of 10 people who say they're Christians, they say they know the Lord, they say they're a follower of Jesus, totally inactive, in their faith. They've all but walked away from Christianity. And they basically say they're either too busy, they're burned out, or they just want to find God somewhere else. And all that leads to a much greater issue. 
The Barna Research Group, representing thousands of interviews every year, you ready for this, have found that born-again Christians, or at least people who say they are, born-again Christians fail to display much evidence in their actions or their attitudes of transformed lives. So in a study just a few years ago, you know what they found out? They found out that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians are statistically equivalent to the lifestyles of non-born-again Christians. So in other words, you ready? Born-again Christians are just as likely to gamble as non-born-again Christians. Born-again Christians are just as likely to visit a pornographic website, take something that doesn't belong to them, consult a medium or a psychic, physically fight or abuse someone, consume enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, use an illegal non-prescription drug, said something to someone that wasn't true, gotten back at someone for something they did to them and said mean things behind someone behind their back. So on the one hand, is it really any wonder that one of the biggest Christian criticisms that non-Christians have of Christians is we're hypocrites? And we face the same decision when we walk out of the room of our homes that everybody else is making. What steps am I going to take? What path am I going to follow? Which direction am I going to go? <laughs> Which action am I going to exercise? I mean, we certainly have enough people who come to our church. And we certainly have enough people in this area that we've reached to fill this building up twice every week. But people get up every day and they make this decision. Yeah, I'm gonna take a step, but it's not gonna be in church. Yeah, I'm gonna take a step, but it's not gonna be to read my Bible. Yeah, I'm gonna take a step with my money, but it's not gonna be support God's work financially. Yeah, I'm gonna take a step, but it's not gonna be the step God's want me to, God wants me to take. And, and there's so much more that I could say, but I just wanna say, say this loudly and clearly. And I'm not putting anybody on a guilt trip. I'm, not, I'm just stating the facts. But if I could just say one thing to you. Jesus died for us so that we would live for him, period. Jesus died for us so that we would live for him. And the way he walked to the cross uh, in his death is the way we ought to walk and live our life for him. And see, we witness to this world in two ways, in our words and in our walk. And what Paul is saying is, we better make sure they both match as those that are worthy of God and pleasing to him. So I'll tell you a prayer we could pray and prayer you could pray for me. Lord, I pray that that person would be directed by your will. And then Lord, knowing that, I pray that that person will be devoted in their walk. And then Paul says, there's one last thing you can pray. And if you pray these three things, you have, you've hit the trifecta, you have covered the gamut. Number three, be diligent in our work. Be diligent in our work for God. Now remember I told you this prayer was sequential. Remember I told you that, right? So the first step is, you gotta be in the will of God. Well, Paul says, okay, if you're in the will of God, then you're gonna have a devoted walk with God. You're gonna be living the way you ought to live. Now, he says this, if you're directed by the will of God and you're devoted in your walk with God, 
you will be diligent in your work for God. So he goes on to say this. He said, okay, you wanna know how you can know whether or not you're in the will of God? Do you wanna know whether or not you're really hitting on all eight cylinders in your walk with God? He says, okay, here's the test. You ready? Here we go. You will be bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. In other words, if you wanna know right now if you're living in the will of God or if you're really right in your walk with God, all you gotta do today is ask yourself one question. And I'm not gonna ask it for you. I want you to ask it to you. You ready? Book your seatbelt. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself right now. Where's my fruit? You, you, you tell yourself, where's your fruit? I don't mean to know you're warm in a seat today. I'm glad you came. Thank God. You may be sorry you came. I'm glad you came. I'm glad you, really. But seriously, where's my fruit? You know why that's such a big deal? Because Jesus, who always knew how to hit the bullseye, Jesus said, I'm gonna tell you what he said that I'm gonna add so what, what he meant. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. The rest is just talk. By their fruit, you will know them. The rest is just talk. I cannot tell you how many funerals I've done a lot of them, of people who said they were believers, they came to church, they lived good, moral lives, but I'm gonna be honest. Other than that, I never saw any fruit in their life. I never saw them serve in any place in the church or outside the church. I never knew them to share their faith in Christ with one person. I never saw them go on a mission trip anywhere. Now, could I testify that they were good people? Absolutely. But compared to everybody else around them, they, were they really godly people? So let me ask you this question. It may sound a little hokey, but just roll with me. If you were a tree, if you were a tree, would there be enough fruit on your limbs that people could look at you and say, you must be a follower of Jesus. I think, let that sink in. If you were just a tree, people just walked by and they saw you every day. They interacted you with, with you every day. They worked with you every day. They played golf with you. They hunted with you. They fished with you. They cooked out with you. Would there be enough fruit on the limbs of your tree that they'd say, you must be a follower of Jesus. Now, let me tell you why bearing fruit is so important. You may think, oh, you're just trying to get me to do something for the church. No, let me tell you why this is so important. You know why bearing fruit is such a big deal? Because bearing fruit leads to growing in the knowledge of God. That's what, that's what bearing fruit does. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. A lot of people, and you may be in this group, and sometimes I have to watch this. A lot of people read the Bible, but they read it for the wrong reason. And, and, and frankly, you know, every believer ought to read their Bible, but I want, you, I want to be very plain. The primary reason we ought to read reading the Bible is not to increase our knowledge about God. It ought to be to increase our knowledge of God. Because the big question that's important for you today is this, 
Don't tell me how much you know about God. Tell me how much you know God. God's not interested in you knowing about him. He wants you to know him. And if you really want to show people you know God, let me tell you something. Don't just tell them how much of the Bible that you know. Show them how much of the Bible you live. That will tell people whether or not you really truly know God. Let me tell you why. You can't love God until you know God. But the better you know God, the more you'll love God. The more you love God, the more you want to serve God. The more you want to serve God, the more you please God. And the more you please God, the more you want to obey God. But it all starts with knowing God. I'll give you an example. Next month, I celebrate 45, 44 years of marriage to Teresa. And I want to tell you something. I know Teresa better today than the day we met. And I can honestly tell you this. The reason why I love my wife today more than the day we met is because I know her better than the day we met. And guess what? The more I know her, the more I love her. The better I know her, the more I love her. And you know what else is true? The more I love her, the more I want to serve her. She told me the other day, and I'm not trying to brag on myself. I'm not a very good husband in some ways, I'll tell you. I, don't, I mean, I'm allergic to yard work. I'm allergic to housework. I'm allergic to a lot of work. I'm just being honest. I'm not lazy. I just don't like to do that kind of stuff. I, I'm not a fix-it-up guy. I can break stuff. I'm just not good at fixing it. I mean, I tell people, if I'd been Noah, everybody would have drowned, okay? I, the whole world's going under. Just not a do-it kind of a guy. I, in some ways, I wish I was a better husband. But there's one little thing I do every morning, and I'm the king of my house. I make her coffee. Every morning I make her coffee. First thing I do, I get up. And by the way, she's really helped me. I just put this little pod in this little thing and I close it and I hit this button and I am the king and I go in there. And you know what? We have a fan that goes on over our, over our bed. I sneak in there. I always put it in the same place and I turn off the fan so it'll keep the coffee warm. And she thinks I am a hero. But you know why I get such joy out of that? Oh, and I also take the dog out and the garbage. And then sometimes when she's upset, she says, just stay with it. But anyhow, that's another story. <laughs> but you know why I love doing that? Because I love her. And when I tell you that, you know, I know you probably get sick of it and I don't really care. Next to Jesus, I don't love anybody like I love that woman. I don't love anybody like I love my wife. But it's because I know her. And she, she's so worthy of my love. She so deserves my love. And, and that's exactly the way it is with God. And watch this. I want to show you what happens when you're directed by the will of God and you're devoted in your walk with God and you're diligent in your work for God. And we'll finish up. Here's what happens. Being strengthened with all power. You want that? Sure. According to his glorious might. I want that. So that you may have great endurance and patience, which you need and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. All of that happens when you're diligent in your work for God, when you are serving God. See, here's what will happen. You'll be tough. You'll have great endurance. That refers to handling the difficult problems in your life. You'll be tender. You'll have patience, uh, you know, with the difficult people in your life. But you'll be thankful because even though you've caused God your share of difficult problems and you at times have been a difficult person, God has still qualified you to be a part of his forever family. And you know how God could pull all of that off? The reason why he could do that is because he's the guardian of the galaxy. 
And he has redeemed us. He has rescued us. He has reclaimed us for his own. So, how's your prayer life? Boy, pastor, it's hard. It's dry. I, I sometimes feel like I am talking to a rubber, it's just like a rubber ball bouncing off the ceiling. Well, listen, if you want God to hear you when you pray, listen to me. If you want God to hear you when you pray, you must obey him when he speaks. And if you'll be directed by the will of God, if you'll be devoted in your walk with God, if you'll be diligent in your work for God, you will not only, not only will God hear you when you speak, but here's the greatest thing of all. You will be a part of the answer. Would you pray with me right now? Heads bowed and eyes closed.